Welcome to the My Buddy Green podcast. I'm Jason Wachab, founder and co-CEO of My Buddy Green, and your host. Marta Zaraska is a science journalist who's written about nutrition and psychology for The Washington Post, Scientific American, The Atlantic, LA Times, among others. And her latest book, Growing Young, How Friendship, Optimism, and Kindness Can Help You Live to 100, It's quite simply one of my favorites of the year, so it is so great to talk with her today. Marta, welcome. Thank you so much for having me, Jason. I am so excited to have you here. Your book, Growing Young, How Friendships, Optimism, and Kindness Can Help You Live to 100 is a new favorite of mine. I really love the book, so congratulations. I'm so glad to hear that. So you have this incredible journey and there's a quote in the book which i love you quote sit-ups and kale juice were not as important to health as i used to think end quote so can you talk a little bit about your health journey you talk about fasting keto running you tried everything but then you started digging into the science of longevity and it was an eye-opening experience so walk us through that journey So I've been a journalist, science journalist, for many years now and writing for the Scientific American, the Washington Post, New New Scientists Discover. And so I was always in this world of nutrition and health and biological sciences. And also at the same time in my private life, I was always interested in how to live long and healthy. Especially when I became a parent eight years ago, kind of I went into overdrive of this healthy nutrition stuff. I really wanted to make sure that our family was healthy, that my daughter was healthy, growing well, obviously. So, you know, I checked the internet for all possible best foods I could give her, all the miracle foods, organic kale, heritage tomatoes. I sprinkled chia seeds on everything possible. I added turmeric to everything. So a single meal that would allow me to allow turmeric without completely spoiling it. So I was really into it. And at the same time, I was trying to exercise as well a lot. I was running health marathons. And yet at work, I started coming across more and more research that was pointing in a very different direction, that perhaps all this craziness about chia seeds was not the best way I should be spending my time and money. Uh, Especially one meta-analysis of studies I came across was very eye-opening. In this particular study, the scientists put together basically all the numbers. So they showed that, for example, the exercise can lower your mortality risk by about 20 to 30 percent. And for the for a very good diet is more or less the same, 20 to 30 percent, whereas something called social integration. So having loving romantic partner, having friends, being connected to your community, all this taken together can lower your mortality risk by about 45 percent, which is astounding. So it's here you have 45 and there was 20 to 30. So even though obviously diet and exercise are important, I was missing a huge chunk of what makes us live long and healthy. I was focusing so much on, on, you know, on this organic kale that I was completely forgetting something else. And also when I researched growing young, I discovered that actually things like exactly organic heritage and super miraculous berries and stuff like that actually doesn't matter almost at all because healthy diet is much simpler than that. It's just eat your veggies, don't eat fast food, don't eat sugar. It's kind of simple. And 
if you think about it that way, it really frees a lot of time to concentrate on those things that I was missing. So kindness, optimism, relationships, things like that. Well, there's so much to unpack there. And, and this is going to be almost like a speed round with you because the book is so dense and in, in, in a good way. And there's so much to, to, to talk through. And so we have to, you mentioned the exercise 20 to 30% positive effect of mortality compared to a happy marriage at 49%. Like, wow, if you're, it's better to be in a happy marriage than exercise. If you do both, you're, you're, that's fantastic. And there's this other, you have this great table in the book uh, you had another great data point where red meat, on the other hand, plus 29%, and, and a bad, plus being bad, minus we talked about happy marriage being good. So red meat plus 29% in terms of mortality risk and loneliness plus 26%. Lonely, so if you're lonely and you're just eating a ton of red meat, that's like the worst <laughs> combination. <laughs> I mean, probably if you added some sugar and fast food, then it would be even worse. But, <laughs> but so- yeah. What's so uh, interesting about the book is we're going to talk about reductionist wellness. You touch on that is, look, we're so focused on, I think, nutrition and food, and that's meaningful, but we can't lose sight of our mental, emotional, and spiritual well-being. And the the data you have here and some of your anecdotes are just extraordinarily powerful. And I think we have lost sight of that. I would describe myself as I said to you before we started, there's a little bit of uh, biohacker meets blue zones, our, our mutual friend, Dan Butner. One of the things you, you like tracking is heart rate variability, which I track. That's important. I track all, lots of things, but like heart rate variability, we'll talk about that. But before we go there, you say in the book, you talk about reductionist wellness. In a culture of reductionist wellness, we've lost the big picture. What did you mean by that? that we just love all simple solutions to everything. If it comes in the form of the of a pill, it's the best, right? If you can just take one tiny pill, swallow it and be done for the day, that's a miracle and the kind of solution that a lot of people are dreaming about. We just want one pill that will make us basically immortal or make us younger or just at least fix our health for today. And it just doesn't work like that. This is why almost half Americans take some kind of dietary supplements every day because we just want to fix things with one pill. It's just easy, right? But unfortunately, our bodies are not easy. They're complicated. Aging is very complicated. It's actually so complicated that scientists don't really understand why we age in the first place. So thinking we can solve something like this with one pill, if we don't even understand why we age or how long humans can live, we don't know that. It's absolutely not possible. And we are complicated creatures. And this involves our social lives and our mental lives. And you said before that, you know, these are, that you like this kind of physical side of, of healthy living, like diet and exercise. But actually those things, being social or being optimistic, these are actually also very physical things. We kind of tend to think about them in kind of new ages, some kind of new agey stuff, but it's nothing like that. It's very connected to our physiology on the level of our telomeres, on the level of our gene expression, social hormones, stress axis. So it's very biological. So you mentioned telomeres and in the book, you talk about DNA methylation. And for those of us listening, like to geek out on some of these, as we talk about our gene expression and things we can track and are measurable. 
The two things that stuck out to me, one, DNA methylation. You're a fan of that. And also heart rate variability. So can you talk a little bit about DNA methylation and how it relates to longevity? And then we'll segue to heart rate variability. I mean, so yes, so you have, if you like measuring stuff and trying to measure how we age, then usually people go to telomeres and DNA methylation. And I wouldn't say I'm a fan of DNA methylation or of telomeres. They are both great tools for researchers. So telomeres are obviously these protective caps at the ends of your chromosomes that take part in aging process. And often in kind of popular media, they're used as kind of something that you can measure. You can send your sample into a lab if you want to, and they will give you results claiming that this kind of gives you a real biological age and you can check yourself how you compare to other people. Unfortunately, it doesn't work like that at all. On the level of an individual, you cannot measure it like that. It's just impossible. The errors in methods are too far, too, too much, and we don't even know whether actually short tel telomeres Telomeres actually can be causing behavior. So there is new research showing that, for example, it's not just your behaviors can shorten your telomeres, but actually short telomeres can cause you certain behaviors. So people who may have short telomeres may be actually more prone to smoking, not that smoking only shortens telomeres. So it's very complicated. And it's a similar story with DNA methylation, which is also another biological clock of aging, uh, which may be better on individual level, level for measuring aging, but it's also not to be used as something that you can just send a sample to a lab and they'll tell you how old you are. It's just a research tool, a great one, but if somebody's trying to sell you this kind of buy a sample, spit here, and we'll tell you how old you are, then it just doesn't work that way. Well, it's interesting because I think in some ways, I think you were getting this point, is we oversimplified telomeres. It was longer telomeres, better for longevity shorter telomeres not so good for longevity it's so yeah, simple it's not so simple. not at all actually long telomeres can cause you cancer so in a way you're trading cardiovascular health for cancer so having long telomeres protects you from cardiovascular disease but it may you know lead to more cancer so it's really very complicated and we are just scraping the surface in terms of research on what telomeres are and how they take part in aging. So so exactly, it's, it's the tool for researchers at this point. And so what about heart rate variability? I mean, this one is a little bit simpler. It's not as complicated as telomeres. And this is why it can be a little bit more useful on individual level as an indicator of your cardiovascular health on one hand, and on the other hand, as an indicator of the health of a nerve called the vagus nerve, which is the, the longest nerve that, that emerges straight from your skull at the base of your brain here and innervates your, your digestive system, your heart, even your, is responsible for your breathing as well. And what else is vagus responsible for is likely it also connects our social lives to our health as well. So it's one of those physiological connectors between how we live our lives socially and how we function on the physiological, biological level. And, and heart rate variability can be one of the measures of the health of this vagus nerve, how it, well it functions, because it's a kind of nerve that helps you calm down. So it's the opposite of a fight or flight response. It basically takes part in calming your body after stress. And if it functions well, then you, we tend to be healthier, basically. And uh, heart rate variability can be a measure of that. So for all of those listening who are wearing some sort of tracking device that, that track 
our heart rate variability? In your opinion, where do we want to be? What's optimal? Low variability, high variability, somewhere in the middle, all unique. What's your quick take on where we ideally want to be? I mean, so definitely that was something when I first read about HRV it was kind of surprising to me because I felt the more the more evenly your heart beats, it sounds like something better, right? But actually it's the opposite. You want your heart rate variability to be high because it means your heart is prepared for quick changes of action, right? So yes, you want it to be high. And so something else, you're talking about the vagus nerve and something else you talk about in the book, which I think is so fascinating is you talk about, this is the mind-body connection, immunopsychiatry. So Mm -hmm. can you explain, I think it's fascinating, what immunopsychiatry is? I mean, so this is generally the, it's a new area of research. And this is something that basically is about how how our brain and neurotransmitters in our brain connect to the immune system. And all of us kind of experience what immunopsychiatry is when we were sick. So if you recall a time when you were down with some kind of virus, not necessarily the virus, could be just, you know, any cold flu of the past. And in general, it makes us feel like we want to isolate ourselves. We want, we feel like we don't want to get, get out of bed. We feel under, you feel under the weather, right? You just want to bundle up in your bed and never, and not leave. And we often assume that this is because of the virus that's attacking us, the cold virus the flu virus. But the truth is that actually is the response, most of it is actually the response of our immune system that causes us to behave in this way. And when you think about it, it's also very similar to another thing that happens to a lot of us, which is called depression. When you're depressed, you also want to isolate, stay in bed and not get off the couch. And actually these are very similar processes. So which you can see how it's exactly this connection between our immune system, which you know, in one hand is fighting viruses, and our behaviors, our social life, because it causes us to isolate, it makes us want to be away from other people. The reason for it is likely because we evolved this way that when we when we were sick, we didn't want to be exposed to many other people, first of all, not to infect them, but also because we're vulnerable. When you're really sick, a sick animal is a vulnerable animal. So, so it's really amazing how it's connected, how we feel kind of in a depressed way, but it's also connected to our immune system. That's why, for example, scientists are now finding that some types of depression that don't respond to traditional treatments may be actually also involved, the immune system might be more involved in this kind of depression. I can't help but thinking of what we're all experiencing around the world right now with COVID and locking down and the loneliness epidemic and our hand we need to have strong immune systems so we can fight COVID. On the other hand, there's loneliness that's occurring in lockdown. So I'm just if you try to zoom out, what do you make of where we're at? Definitely, it's not good for us, as we've talked before. Loneliness is a it's a huge health issue, and it's on the other hand, connecting with others can really boost the immune system. For example, happy married people have a better vaccine response, meaning that they if they get vaccinated against flu, they are much more likely to have a better immune response to it than people who are lonely. The same, for example, in general, loneliness makes us more prone to viruses. There was this one fascinating study I described in Growing Young in which the, the scientists invited 300 people into their lab and infected them basically with cold viruses, obviously 
by their permission. The, the volunteers were paid a lot for that. Uh, so they infected them with viruses. And afterwards, they saw that the people who are claiming to be the most lonely were the most likely to come down with the virus, which shows you that loneliness is really bad when you are trying to avoid viruses. Also, things like kindness, volunteering actually can protect, can boost your antiviral response. Uh, so, so really, there is such a powerful connection also between our immune system and how we respond to viruses and how we live our life socially. Wow. It's just, wow, because you think about we're locking down, people are social distancing, and on one hand, we understand why we have to do it, but on the other hand, it's making us more vulnerable. This, it's a tough one. <laughs> I mean, I believe there are things we can do still. You can, We can still connect the best we can. For example, a lot of people are locked down with other people, with their families, with their partners, with their roommates. And you can really try to boost these relationships, right? Like really make sure to have quality connections. Uh, and also, for example, volunteering. You can volunteer online. It doesn't have to be in person. There are things you can, kindness as well. You can also do a lot of small acts of kindness, which also can be very powerful. Uh, you can just do things like you can leave a sticky note on your neighbor's card with a smiley face on it. It's a small act of kindness and that still works, right? So there are things we can do even when we're in lockdown. So in terms of friendships, you spend a lot of time on the power of friendships, community. In terms of longevity, how many friends? What types of friends? Do, do the, the quote-unquote weak ties, saying hello to the person at the coffee shop you see every day, like in terms of health benefits, in terms of longevity, what do we really need in terms of friendships? It depends. So it really depends on your own needs. So definitely we all need very close friends, but we also need those weak ties. So if you only have weak ties, that's not good. And if you just have one very good friend and apart from that, no one, then it's also not good. So you, you need the whole full picture. But in terms of how many of those close friends you need, people really vary. So I've asked exactly the same question to Professor Robin Dunbar at the University of Oxford, who is, researches exactly the numbers of friends we need. Dunbar's and number. Dunbar, exactly, Dunbar's number. And so I asked him that and he told me that you really feel in your gut how many close friends you need. Definitely, it cannot be zero. If it's zero, then it's not good for you. But it can just be one. And if you have one very close friend that you can rely on, that you can tell all your secrets and feelings to that person, then you are fine. If you feel that's fine. But you may have three friends like that and still feel it's not enough because maybe you need five right? So people differ in that way. Uh, but we all need a close friend, someone we have, we can talk with and so on and so on and so on. We also need those weak ties we need to have. We, we need to know our neighbors. We have to have some colleagues at work. In one study, um, researchers, I think from the Netherlands, calculated that each weak tie lowers your mortality risk by 2% or something like that. So they really put a very precise number on that. Uh, I wouldn't hang on to this number to, to, to you know, radically, but it gives you an idea that having more of the weak ties uh, is important as well. Of course, I don't mean weak ties like you just saw this person once in your life, but neighbors, colleagues, like some kind of distant family members, everybody plays a role. And so we think of the microbiome usually as the gut, 
you know, probiotics, yogurt, kefir, all that good stuff. But you, you talk about how social networks can influence our microbiome. Could you expand upon that a little bit? Yes, so research shows that we actually exchange microbes with other people. So for instance, if you have two sports team playing some kind of sport, contact sports, they will exchange skin microbes between each other. Also exchange my gut microbes uh, with family members, even with family pets, we actually exchange microbes. And most, most likely, the more diverse your networks, the better for your gut microbiome. This research so far has been done, the one on the diversity of friendships has only been done on mice, but there are good indications that a similar thing would apply to us, that generally a diversity of microbiome, we know it's good for us. And since we exchange the microbes we know we do with others uh, in a similar way as other animals do, uh, then such a diversity would be good for us as well. So one of the, the things or themes of the book I really love is the power of the mind to influence the body and the role, the mental, the spiritual, and the emotional play. Look at Mind Buddy Green, it's mental, physical, spiritual, emotional, environmental well-being. All connected, one word, Mind Buddy Green. So like you're hitting on mental, spiritual, emotional in a big way, and we don't talk enough about that, and I love the science you bring. And you had this astounding statistic where I just said, whoa. I, I read it to my wife, Colleen, when I, when I was going through the book. You talk about psychogenic deaths. You said 10, 10 to 15% people who die from drowning in the ocean have no water in their lungs, indicating no drowning occurred. Essentially, they died from panic. Like, can you talk? I read that. I said, holy cow. I mean, it brings us back to the vagus nerve, right? So the, the long snake of the nerve that emerges from your brain. Uh, and so this is a similar death, most likely, to what have been on the minds of anthropologists for a long time. And this is something called the voodoo death. So for a very long time, travelers and anthropologists have been describing this kind of uh, voodoo death, which happens when people uh, in tribes of Africa or you know, Papua New Guinea, they, for example, they are cursed by a local shaman, let's say, and they believe in the curse so much that they actually die because of the curse. Nobody does anything to them. Nobody poisons them. Nobody does any physical harm to them and yet they still die because they believe they are supposed to die and because of the curse and this really happens and it has been puzzling scientists and right now there are the most likely explanation is exactly the psychogenic death so the uh, overcalming of the vagus nerve so in general normally in your life the calming effect of the calming effects of the vagus nerve are a good thing, right? It calms you down, it slows your heart rates, it, it makes you relax. But if it's overstimulated, it can calm you down so much, basically, it turns everything off, right? It shuts you down. Uh, so, so it looks, obviously it's a very extreme case, and most for most of us it will never ever happen. But this is exactly the power of the mind and of the vagus nerve on on our body. So when I read that, I, I, I my jaw dropped, and I'm curious. You did so much research in this book. In the research, what surprised you the most in this process? Where did your jaw drop? 
<laughs> I mean, a lot of times, that's for sure. Uh, I mean, I think just generally the whole idea and the numbers, how huge that thing, all these things are, right? The the power of exactly of marriage on your mortality risk, on how people who live in a couple, how they synchronize their bodies, for instance. When you live with someone, you said you're married, right? So you and your wife. Probably, I'm not sure, but you know, a lot of married couples, they actually synchronize their heart rate, their pulse. Well, their, we actually uh, work together. So we're also co-founders, exactly. co-CEOs. So we're, <laughs> we're all, we're sharing lots of the micro, but lots of everything. So you synchronize, you even like your finger temperature, your electric conductivity in your chest. So it's mind bogging how much happens, how strong and how physiological these connections are between our minds our relationships and how our body functions and so you also talk about i thought this was fascinating that cohabitation so living with a partner doesn't have the same health benefits as actually living with your spouse so there are health benefits to being married versus just being in a partnership I mean, it depends on the partnership. So it's not really about the cohabitation per se, it's about commitment. So if you are living with someone because you are planning to be married, for example, you're already engaged or you're just talking about it and or you just decided you don't believe in paperwork or whatever, but you are definitely certain that this is the person and you want to spend the rest of your life together, then the benefits are exactly the same as of marriage. The problem is when you live with someone, but you are not really sure. So you're kind of like still... You're saving rent versus you're committed for long term. Exactly. So if the commitment is not there, then unfortunately, the health benefits are not as powerful either. I mean, there are some health benefits, but they are just not as powerful. And the reason for that is that most likely what we get from this kind of committed romantic relationship is the feeling of safety. So we can really, our fight or flight response, this HPA axis can really calm down because this person is there for you exactly for better or for worse, no matter what happens to you somewhere deep down, that this person will be there. And, and whereas if obviously the relationship is not committed, you don't have this feeling, you don't know what will happen if the, you get sick, whether will, this person will be there or not. There's so much great content in the book on the power of a loving relationship. And, and I'm curious, I won't cover everything, but I thought there were some great takeaways. So what should we all be doing more of with our partners in terms of our longevity? It's for longevity. Yes. <laughs> so, I mean, definitely quality of the contact is important, right? So, and also things like just physical touch. So holding hands, looking directly into your partner's eyes, this all causes release of oxytocin. So the social hormone, often called the love hormone, which not only makes us feel, you know, all warm and fuzzy, but it also has very direct physiological effects on our body. So for example, oxytocin has anti-inflammatory effects. It promotes bone growth. So it so do we do make sure to have this kind of physical contact all the time, right? As, as much as you can, like just hug, hold hands, look into each other's eyes. But also what really keeps the things going. So I've talked to uh, John Gottman, who is one of the biggest experts on, on marriage quality in the world. And so he, what he told me is that what's important is to avoid, he calls it four riders of the apocalypse, I think. And the worst of them, so the worst behavior that you can be doing in marriage is uh, contempt, 
So if you feel contempt towards your partner, this is really not good. So if you have this kind of eye-rolling relationship, that's definitely not good. And on the opposite side, what you should be doing is uh, trying to do new things together. So to kind of not settle into the same pattern all the time. So uh, other recommendations I got, for example, is go to amusement parks. Supposedly the thrill of roller coasters, for example, uh, our bodies confuse it with sexual attraction. So if you do something that causes you basically fear, you can do bungee jumping or whatever you feel kind of as is exciting. And it actually makes us renew this kind of first flutters of falling in love. So when you think of relationships and partners and marriage and spouses, I think of sleep. Let's talk about sleep. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's very important as well. That's for sure. And actually lonely people sleep worse than people who are not feeling lonely. And so I'm guessing these days people are getting worse sleep most likely because of the, all the additional loneliness of the lockdowns. And the reason for that is actually quite fascinating. Uh, so we sleep worse when we are lonely because... We evolved this way again. Uh, when you think about it, in our evolutionary past, when we were lonely, it meant we were outside of our tribe, right? So we were kicked out or got lost, whatever, and we were suddenly alone on the savanna, and there were all these wild animals around, very dangerous. So you really didn't want to sleep well, because if you slept well and you know really deeply, you might have gotten eaten by a lion or whatever. So if you felt lonely, it makes good sense to be very vigilant. So sleep shallow, wake up a lot and, and stuff like that. And unfortunately, our bodies didn't get the memo that it's 21st century. And we still, when we are feeling lonely, we feel that we are outside of the tribe on the savanna and we, we look out for the lions. So something else in the book you talk about, and God, the world needs this right now, is empathy. Empathy has oh, yeah. health benefits. Let's talk about empathy. I mean, empathy is the founding stone of a lot of things. We talked about good relationships, and when people are empathetic, the, they have better relationships. Their spouses are more happy with them if they're empathetic. People who are empathetic volunteer more, which is another powerful driver of health. They donate more money. Uh, they are more kind. And when I talk about empathy, I'm sometimes asked, or people tell me, you know, well, I was born with low empathy, it's my genes, I cannot do anything about it as the kind of person I am. But the truth is that even though empathy has quite a large genetic component to it, anywhere between 30 and 50 percent, the truth is that all, it doesn't, doesn't really mean that you cannot improve still, right? For example, uh, our physiology, our muscles are also to a large extent genetic, how muscular we are. Uh, I don't have the same athletic capabilities as Usain Bolt, for example, but it doesn't mean I'm not running or I won't try to run faster or longer. I will, I will never be an Olympic runner. And yet I'm still trying. And I think it's the same thing about empathy. You may have not gotten the best deal in your genes, but it doesn't mean you shouldn't try to improve or that you can't improve. You can still improve a lot. And so, so practicing empathy is extremely important, those empathy muscles. I love it. We all need to focus on that right now. And you talk a lot about Japan and Okinawa, Japan, and I'm a big fan because of Dan Buettner and Blue Zones. And let's talk about Japan and what, what we can learn from Japan in terms of longevity. So one fascinating thing that uh, struck me when I was traveling in Japan for research was that 
when I talk about aging with Western researchers, uh, the conversation usually concentrates on, on diet, on exercise, perhaps on loneliness sometimes. But in Japan, very, very fast, what the, the topic, the main topic became purpose in life. So it's something that is really on the top of the list as a health behavior for the Japanese. So this is something they call the ikigai. Supposedly, it's not exactly the same thing as purpose in life. There is some slight difference, but also supposedly translates very difficult. It's very difficult to translate into English. Uh, but it's something like reason for living, purpose in life. And, and the Japanese really recognize the power of ikigai so much so that the health ministry of Japan actually has put it on the list of uh, of behaviors to prioritize for the healthiness of the nation. So they actually see it as a health behavior, the same way our government recognizes diet and exercise. And actually these days, uh, it's no longer the Okinawa prefecture, that's the longest lived part of Japan, it's actually Nagano, this is the mountainous part closer to Tokyo. And they, what the government, Japan, the Japanese government has found is that one of the reasons is also because people there have particularly high levels of this ikigai, this purpose in life, and they believe that might be one of the drivers of their longevity. So, as you said, us Westerners are obsessed with diet and exercise. And so, on a circle back there, what is optimal in terms of diet and what is optimal in terms of exercise? I mean, I think that diet, in a way, healthy diet, is a very simple thing. So I really love the quote from Michael Pollan, who said that eat food, not too much, mostly plants. And basically, that's it. You really don't have to eat all the fancy miracle foods or the organic kale and goji berries and all this stuff. Carrots, apples, cabbage, perfectly fine. Uh, just don't eat junk, don't eat sugar, your basic healthy diet. But the problem is that we don't hear much about it in the media because nobody would pay us journalists to write an article like this. Eat more veggies. That doesn't make headlines. It's boring. It is the same message for the last six decades. Nobody wants to hear it again and again. So if somebody finds some kind of berry that grows in the jungles of Papua New Guinea uh, and has a lot of vitamin B6, whatever, then suddenly it makes headlines because you've never heard about it before. So it's a story that grabs attention, whereas carrots don't grab attention. So this is why we hear about all these miracle foods and fat diets and supplements and stuff. Somebody's making money, somebody's trying to grab your attention, whereas healthy diet is kind of boring. It's easy and boring. And what about exercise? I think it's a very similar thing. It's also very simple, you know, just move around and you don't have to have some special exercise gadgets or take some special classes. It's just about simply moving around. And in this term, the governmental recommendations are usually very simple. Just do this amount of that many minutes of cardio activity, that many minutes of some kind of strength activity. And, and that's it. It differs by governments. Some tell you 150 minutes. That's there are different recommendations, but you know there is. You, we don't need this all this fancy equipments or uh, fancy classes and stuff like that. And very often, also you can you can actually marry the soft drivers of health I've been talking about, so social relationships or kindness with physical activity. For example, you can not only you can go for a run with a friend, but you can also, for example, instead of 
going to the gym, you can go and mow the lawn of your neighbor, which is a kind act. And also if it's a push low mower, it's a physical activity. So one of my favorite places that I've ever been to with my wife is this resort uh, called Blackberry Mountain in Tennessee. And you go, you can go for a hike. You go for like a 40 minute hike up, up this, this huge big hill mountain, if you will. And up top, you can grab a glass of wine. So to me, that's incredible. I'm going to ask where I'm segueing to is alcohol. So <laughs> where does, if you go, I'm incorporating the hiking with my wife. Maybe I'm gazing into her eyes. I'm, I'm checking your boxes, but if we have, if we cap it off with a good glass of red wine or margarita or what have Perfect. you, so talk about alcohol. Where does alcohol fit into this? I mean, if, you, if there is not too much, I think it's fine, right? <laughs> so, <laughs> I mean, the research, there is always, there is some research saying that drinking a little bit of wine is fine. There is some research saying, I, I haven't really followed it that closely to know what is exactly the correct way to go, but most likely small amounts of alcohol are perfectly fine. So in closing, what are your non-negotiables for everyone listening? Like what, what's... What should we all be doing right now in terms of longevity? What are your marching orders? I mean, definitely diet and exercise are still important, right? So let's not forget about that. I'm never saying eat junk or sit on your couch all the time. Absolutely not. Uh, but I really think we should add to the list. So usually the list is diet, one number one diet, number two exercise, right? But we definitely should add number three, or even put it on number one, is the social relationships, right? Our our connections. And we should think about it as a health behavior as well, as a health priority even, right? Just the way, you know, we think about eating exactly our veggies and fruits, we should think about making time for our relationships as a health priority. So in a way, for example, you can put your gym class into your calendar or your run into your calendar. You should also put time for your friends into your calendar or a date night with your spouse uh, because it's a priority as well also for your longevity and your, for, for your physical health. And also developing empathy and kindness habits in general. So it can be everyday kindness, it can be volunteering, but making it into a habit, a health habit, just like we do, for example, with having a glass of water the first thing we wake up. Just think about how you can be kind today or how can you be more empathetic today. And it can be, it can take just a few seconds per day, literally a few seconds, empathy training. It's just as simple as once per day looking at another person, a stranger, and just imagining how this person sees the world what is this person feeling or thinking you can look at a bus driver or somebody standing on the other side of the street and what is this person thinking what is this person feeling it's, it's a simple exercise that can really develop your empathy and you can make it into a habit just as we have a habit of doing push-ups or exactly drinking water I love it. We'll close there. We all need to make empathy a habit. It needs to be a priority for everyone. The world needs it. We need it. Yep. It's for, it's for our mental yeah. health, our physical health, and for our societal health. Amen. We will close there. Marta, thank you so much. Growing Young. I love the book. Everyone pick it up. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much, Jason.